So I picked up the New York Times yesterday, Shauna, and I came across an article that was talking about how focusing on racial justice in schools and uh, teaching children about the history of slavery in the United States is divisive. And a number of people are calling for the Biden administration to withdraw its executive order, encouraging um, people to engage in these conversations. You know what? That's pretty ironic, actually, that I just had this conversation while I was on vacation with some of my girlfriends. And we all have school-aged children. And we were talking about this very topic of, first, when is it appropriate to introduce this to younger kids? And also, what topics are appropriate and which ones are not? And all of us, I thought, were pretty liberal folks. But I think I'm like off the tracks liberal at this point. Like, they make me look like I am just footloose and fancy free on everything compared to their perspectives. I would just love to talk about this with you. This is a great topic. Yeah. Okay. So let's do that after the break. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So Lisa, tell me about this New York Times article, because it sounds like we all should have read this article before engaging in my conversation with my girlfriends on vacation. We are all torn about what, in fact, is divisive and what isn't, whether it's with kids or even with adults as well. What what are we got? What are we getting at here with the divisiveness piece? Well, I think, well, it's white people, shockingly, um, who have written the letter um, saying that focusing on um, racial justice, specifically focusing on slavery and that the effects of slavery are still felt today by Black and African-American people in this country systemically and individually is divisive and it causes problems and it teaches white kids to feel bad about themselves and it also teaches kids that the U.S. is inherently evil. So it's like complete hyperbole, right? Because <laughs> learning about your history that's accurate, because historically, right, history is whitewashed. And so a lot of that information mm. is left out. Um, mm-hmm. But that's okay. Like we can we can fabricate some history and we can we can whitewash it. And that's good. But the truth oh, no, no, the truth is divisive because the way I see it as a white person is the truth implicates me in racism and that's not acceptable. So that's what I think when I hear um, talking about racism and slavery and the current effects of of that as being divisive is that white people now currently do not want to be anywhere near Mm. blame Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, so that's that's interesting to me because... I'm not surprised about where this is coming from because this is even more of an example of white fragility just in general. But, you know, what I think is really interesting is that, you know, we talk about this constantly, the the hero writes the history, right? We talk about this all the time. The hero writes the history. So we don't want to talk about losing. We want to talk about winning. We don't want to talk about the villain. We want to talk about the victor. And so this kind of Uh, dichotomy of someone was either at a loss or lost, whether it's the Civil War, whatever it is, or there's someone who was disenfranchised, let's skip over that part of the conversation or let's glamorize it or let's commercialize it 
And let's tell the story that's pleasant and the story that's comfortable and the story that is something to be proud of rather than telling the full story. Um, and I think, and I'm not a historian, but I'm just trying to challenge, um, channel some of my friends who are historians. Um, I'm listening in my brain to Amrita now uh, down at um, uh, Indiana. She talks a lot of, about how revisionist history is not a revision. It's full history. It's the total story. It's almost like the country lies by omission, right? And, and it sounds like that's what, what's happening is we're trying to not lie by omission and the correction feels like an overcorrection to the victors yes. that are used to telling yes. the doggone story. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, that's so frustrating to me. Be- yeah. well, and, and I think what's interesting is that, you know, once again, we're at a place where we have to weigh what's more important the discomfort and the embarrassment of people who have been generationally involved in racism or whatever ism is that more important than the full story, the total story and everyone we say is welcome despite our history saying otherwise, like which one is more important. And it sounds like white comfort is still more important. Yeah. I mean, that's how I hear it. And, um, it just, it blows my mind a little bit. And maybe this is because I didn't grow up here. So I don't, I'm not as emotionally attached to it as a white person, but it just seems yes. so patently yes. obvious that um, history defines the current day, right? That doesn't mean say you have to be tied to history, which is one of the arguments is that that happened in the past. We're not tied to it. We shouldn't focus on it. But to say that historical events don't inform where we are, I mean, it's layered, right? Everything builds on everything. So to argue that slavery um, and the oppression of Black and African-American people in this country does not have an effect in our current day is just absurd to me. Like, of course Mm -hmm. it does. Mm -hmm. Of course it does. I mean, I feel like you're just burying your head in the sand there because it's just more comfortable for you to do that, right? Right, right, right. It's much more comfortable to be in that place. And I think that's the big challenge of, you know, once again, going to comfort, you know, are we going to tell the full story? And if we're not going to tell the full story, we don't even have a good reason as to why we're not going to tell the full story. And so, you know, I I constantly go back to other countries and other even politicians who have gone back to say, we as a country, not you, Lisa, individually, or pick another white person that originated here, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, you know, no, we're not saying that an individual is at fault. We are saying that an entire system is at fault. And th- I know this is going to probably be controversial and go off the rails and that's okay. But, you know, can we truly say this country um, is, can, can we say being a United States cis, uh, citizen is not inherently embedded in racism in some way? Meaning that I don't even feel like we can tell the full U.S. American story without talking about racism. If not, we're talking about a really, <laughs> look, right. Lisa, going back to spoiling your, your students' uh, understanding of Disney, I feel like we're spoiling people's story of the American story. Yes. Yes. And I'm okay with spoiling that, frankly, and I know you are too. But, you know, we are spoiling this story of oh, well, everyone can have the house with the white picket fence and everyone can have X, Y, Z and everyone has access to you. And I feel like we're spoiling the Disney story for a lot of people when there's other people that said the Disney story was flawed to begin with. And no offense to Disney, I love y'all. I'm just saying it's a good parallel to 
this is lovely and the flowers always bloom and there's never mosquitoes at Disney. It's kind of like how we're mm -hmm. uh, portraying the U.S. that there are no flaws. And we know there are deep flaws mm -hmm. that still play out. They still yeah. play out to this day. Yeah. And that actually just made me think of triathlon specifically, right? Because I hear all the time that triathlon, because it's a newer sport and it has equal prize money for men and women, um, is has kind of quote unquote solved the problem, right? Um, at least around gender equity. Um, oh, and so let's mm -hmm. focus on that. <laughs> let's not focus on the mosquitoes that that are just kind of like humming below the surface, right? The fact right, that it's right. predominantly white, it's predominantly male, it's predominantly right. wealthy and how it's just like by its very nature excludes a lot of people um, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. we, we don't want to look at that. So I'm just going to yeah. turn my back on it and I'm just going to keep going. Yeah. 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 That's the unpleasant part. And so, all right. So to go to our point here, how do we get to through and beyond the divisiveness language that's often used to be a run uh, to run an interference on this work. And so what I mean by that is this is not the first time we've seen it before. So, you know, we, mm -hmm. we see mm -hmm. it in, in this New York times article, we see it in the executive order that was, you know, actually came down from 45 from a different direction from Biden's administration. We saw divisiveness language. What do you really think folks mean? What, what do we really think folks mean when they say, Oh, well, talking about racism and slavery is divisive. What do we really think they're getting at? Because usually the word that's being used is not truly what people mean. It's convenient because no one mm -hmm. wants to be divided. So on the surface, it's like, oh, maybe they have a point. I don't want to be divided from my neighbors and my fellow Americans. I don't want that either. But I still feel like I can call out the long-term effects of slavery while still being, um, what's the opposite of divisive, uh, connected. Mm. Uh, and in community to people, I feel, and that's more complex work, but I still think it can be done. So mm -hmm. Lisa, what do you think people really mean by device of especially deep seated white folks who have a skin in the game in maintaining mm -hmm. power? What do they really mean? Cause I'm not getting it. Well, I mean, I don't profess to be in their heads, but um, you know, it's definitely a code word, right? It definitely isn't about division. Um mm. It's, mm -hmm. that's, that's surface. It's really, mm -hmm. well, it's about the main, maintenance of power, right? So, mm -hmm. um, because to honestly talk about the history of the United States and all, honestly reckon with how damaging and detrimental and harmful that has been to a significant number of U.S. citizens and how that still plays out today mm -hmm. is to also acknowledge your own culpability, right? In perpetuating those systems. <laughs> there you go. So right. it's, right. yeah, divisiveness yeah. is a code word for, I don't want to be accountable because that happened in the past. So stop bringing it up because it's uncomfortable. Mm. It's not my fault. And I just want to move on. That's what I think it is. Power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and yes, I, I think I agree with everything that you said. And I, I want to add a little layer to it too. I think that the word divisive is a great distraction from actually doing the work itself because I think no one on either side, whether they truly believe in the longstanding effects of racism or if they believe that we are post-racist, which Lisa and I do not believe that, um, but you know, regardless of where you fall on the racism scale, no one on that scale necessarily 
strives to fulfill a goal of being divisive. Instead, I think it's it's kind of like trying to mend in many ways or or stitch back together or you know sometimes I think about this type of work being a situation where you're like a surgeon and you're trying to heal things and stitch parts back together that have been wounded and you know you're going to leave a scar but you're trying to leave the smallest scar possible Mm -hmm. and maybe that's just me and my two c-sections talking from my sons but I remember my my uh, doctor saying okay Shauna you already had Trey by c-section when I go back in I'm going to make the incision exactly where it was for Trey for Kendrick and I'm going to do my best to leave the prettiest scar possible. And I was like, well, shit, how do you creep? How do you leave a pretty scar? Like a scar is inherently yeah. not pretty. Right. But I got what he was saying was I'm trying to do as little damage or leave as little of a trail as possible, knowing that it's always going to be there. So, you know, if mm-hmm. you've had that person that's broken an ankle or whatever, you can still see a small scar, even if it's pretty, you can still see a few stitches. And so, you know, something happened, Right you know, something happened. Um, so you can't ignore that part, but it's not going to be fully erased. And so I think the divisiveness is not the problem, but we're trying to make it a really good interference so that we don't do the really hard work and stitching back together. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, it is, it's a diversion. Um, it also makes people who are articulating the position that we need to focus on racism, sexism, ableism as the enemy right? You're an enemy to America because oh. you're not acknowledging how great America is. So it, fra- it, it dichotomizes you bad, us good, right? We just want to get along. You want to cause trouble. And that's also a diversion. Mm, and so, okay. So now we're getting into anti-Americanness or anti-whatever-ness or um, even I would even suggest people in any sport could even say, this is, what is it, unsportsmanlike conduct to even talk about the longstanding effects of exclusion in triathlon, in sport, in in any Mm -hmm. sport. Um, I, I think one of the enemies of doing the work that we do, in addition to the diversion, in addition to, um, you know, folks telling the history in exclusionary ways, I think part of it is the dichotomy piece. It's that it's easy to start a fight when you have teams, but what happens when you don't have a team anymore? Like, what if we all said, no, let's talk about this from a nuanced perspective, mm-hmm. a fluid mm-hmm. perspective, a, uh, a scale, if you will, then it's, it's harder to create teams because it's no longer a team. Right. And so it's easy to say I'm, you know, pro this and anti that. Like we do it with every topic that's a, that's offensive and concerning in the United States. We do it with the pro-lifers and the pro-choice. We, we do it with all that. Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter. We create teams by saying that something is divisive when really there are no teams. I thought we were supposedly to be on a larger, diverse American team. Mm-hmm. So let's create uh these imaginary teams that really shouldn't even exist to begin with, because like, we can't even create, uh, we're not doing it successfully in this country. I don't even think we create uh, political party teams in ways that are helpful because I just sat on vacation with three of my closest friends 
We all consider ourselves liberal. We all consider ourselves Democrats. We all consider ourselves DEI champions in various industries, yet we all fell at different points when it came to the divisiveness of bringing up certain topics in certain settings. So I don't even think the team thing works, um, but the divisiveness thing, I, I think that's where mm-hmm. we have to start calling out how divisiveness as a code word, we're not going to, we're not going to take the bait on that. Right. <laughs> I think it's bait. It may be bait. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how do we avoid taking the bait on the divisive term? Mm, it is like competition is king, right? Which is very transferable to the sport context. Oh, you know, in a capitalist yes. society, there always has to be someone that you're against, someone that you are trying to win over, um, you know, and that's also the, the true in team sports. I mean, it's a little different, mm. but kind of ultimately the same premise. Yes. Um, yes. You know, so that's really interesting that we're going to engage in competition with someone else because that one diverts us and two, um, you know, mm. trying to think of the right word here. Like it may, it maintains power. It right creates a rise in people like you're talking about. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. so it's not just responding to the um, word, right. It's the refusal to get into a cat and mouse. Um, yes. A versus B, right? Like I'm not going to step into that competitive kind of capitalist way of someone has to be right and on top. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, you know, refusing. Yeah. And so being resistant um, and, and being, this kind of goes back to Kendi's concept of being anti-racist as a active choice to be against the current of And that's exactly what we will have to do moving forward. Anyone that wants to be a champion of this work, we will literally have to swim against the current of language, code words, behavior that tries to paint these topics as divisive. Um, And and I think the divisiveness. So, for example, Lisa, if you say, you know, the color of your shirt sucks. Well, I'm feeding into divisiveness if I say, well, I like black shirts. If you like blue shirts, then we're just going to have to be on different teams versus responding to say, does it really matter what color shirts we have on? That's a diversion. We all have shirts. We're grateful to have the shirts. Let's move forward. Like it's, it's so important to name things, but also diffuse things that are not relevant to the conversation. And so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about a good friend of mine I used to work with at College Park uh, who went up to into upstate New York and did very similar work to what we do in a K through 12 setting. And there was a outpouring of disdain and disgust with this person serving as a, a chief diversity officer role because of this very topic. Uh, the parents, the family members, et cetera, thought that these topics, just even bringing them up in the history of US history, world history, Uh, even topics about sociology, biology, science, they felt it wasn't appropriate because it was divisive. And I, you know, kind of dug into it a little bit further and so forth. And they were talking about, well, I want to have control over what's appropriate and what's not. And as I'm reading this article, um, now this person is long gone, left the position willingly, said, I'm not exactly what we said. I'm not having this coded divisiveness conversation with an entire you know, city school system. Um, and what I thought was profound was that 
the history piece. It's okay to tell the part of the history and the content of K through 12 that we are comfortable with as nice white parents, family members, loved ones. But the part that we're uncomfortable with, that's divisive. And so I'm like, wait a minute. So we can talk yeah. about every single American president in the history of this country who were slave owners, who were rapists, who were sexist, who were all the ist, et cetera. But we're not going to talk about the Trail of Tears and we're not going to talk about Emmett Till and we're not going to talk about XYZ. So it's almost like <laughs> they bring up certain heroes and then they don't talk about the battle that they faced at that time. So how can you talk about Martin Luther King if you're not talking about the full story of civil rights? Or how can you talk about Thurgood Marshall if you're not talking about the whole movement of civil rights, especially in law in this country? Like you can't talk about the sexy commercialized hero that you like to quote without talking about the battle that they were in. So you'll talk about war heroes in this country, but you won't talk about the actual battle they were in and what they were fighting for. Straight up bullshit, flat out, all of it is. That that to me is, what did we say before? Um, cherry picking things? Like you're taking mm-hmm. out what's commercially sexy without talking about the context. Right. And that's irresponsible. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, I think it's completely irresponsible. So, you know, how do we get to a place where we're not cherry picking what we are most comfortable with? Mm. Yeah, that's interesting because I'm trying to think about that and apply it to sport, right? And in, in any sport, how there are um, of the athletes of color um, or the disabled athletes, um, all the trans athletes, right? They're elevated um, and kind of placed on a pedestal in some way. Um, look, look, right. We have this person. Um, let's talk about how great it is that this person is in the sport and, but the, the stress and the struggle and the context and the history is omitted. And so it's like, just look in this Mm -hmm. direction, just look Mm -hmm. in this direction, right. Rather than asking the bigger question of, why are there so few of this particular group in this particular sport? And let's track that back and make sure our athletes understand that, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think what we've inadvertently done, Lisa, <laughs> I wish we could say we did this. We have almost solved any of the inspiration porn that we've been talking about for episodes now, right? Because mm-hmm. let's think about it. So we, Inspiration porn happens around us all the time when it comes to DEI work. Martin Luther King, you pull the quote, but then you just voted against anything that would um, prevent another George Floyd for, from happening, for example. Th- those types of things that happen that are just completely, mm-hmm. co- complete cognitive dissonance, right? So Dr. King can be inspiration porn, um, you know, on and on with the list. I think we do the same thing with certain athletes. We talk about you know, Sika Henry, I love you, Sika. I hope you had a great time racing this past weekend. You talk about the Sika Henrys of the world, but you don't talk about why it's so difficult for her to get her pro card in the sport of triathlon, right? I love you, girl. This is not about you. It's about the system, you know, or, you know, we talk about uh, women who have been repeat world champions, but we don't talk about how difficult it was for them to get a slot to begin with. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about any of that, or, you know, we talk about, that one 
blind triathlete uh, that finished their first full Ironman, but we didn't talk about how difficult we made it for people to become guides for those folks so that they could have someone along, um, alongside them as they accomplish this goal. We don't want to talk about that part. We just want to talk about, oh my God, they did it. Against what exactly? Against what? Let's talk about everything they were against to still be in the sport that we don't want to talk about that whole system at all. None of it. Right. Right. Or if we do talk about it, yeah, it's, it's brushed over a little bit, right? Like at quote unquote adversity, right? Quote unquote (laughs) struggles, right? Right. It's never really named explicitly. And then if it is in the rare instances, some of that is named, nothing is then done about it. There you go. Well, Uh, if we don't name it, we don't have to do anything about it, Lisa. Right. You know, if we don't name it, then we can keep saying, oh, this person is a stellar human being, which they are, without saying they're stellar with this backdrop of ridiculousness. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So uh, it's the both and, you know, I can say that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about my list of friends now who are African-American, some of the few that are now getting to go to Kona this year, for example, they did it, but against what? You know, let's go down the laundry list of things they had to work against to get to get there. You know, I have a friend that's going to Kona this year and, you know, had to get over major anxiety of, you know, going through riding through a park in the deep south and having cans thrown at her while she was riding her bike. She went to Kona or is going to Kona in spite of that bullshit. So let's talk about the whole story of how she's going to Kona. And you know, those little porn stories that they show when they do the telecast and everything where yeah. you know, this veteran did this, and, and which I, I love those. I'm the one that's like boohoo and listening to these stories. So please don't stop the stories. But what I am saying is tell the fuller story. I want to cry that my black friend is going to Kona, but I also want to cry in the context of knowing that this person is saying F you to every racist that didn't want her to ride her bike through that park at the same time. I want to do it all at the same time. Well, and implicate, like when we're telling those stories, white people in particular, when it comes to race, like implicate ourselves in those stories, right? That our inaction and kind of glossing over of some of these um, systemic problems has created this kind of euphemism um, of adversity, right? Um, Without uh, any accountability, right? Like no athlete should have to quote unquote overcome adversity to have a place in a championship or even just in a local race, right? Like mm-hmm. we shouldn't even be at a point where we are celebrating individuals for what they have done, again, quote unquote, in spite of, right? All of this shit, like right. the shit shouldn't be there. And so mm-hmm. that's part of our responsibility, white people, men, able-bodied people is to clear away the shit. But if we don't talk about the shit and we just say it's divisive to talk about the shit, then the shit is going to continue to stink. And it's going to continue to be there. Yes. Yeah. Look, we, we might call this the sugar, honey, iced tea episode, the SHIT episode, because we're just letting it fly today. But, but it, you're right. And well, and see, this is where I think the divisiveness and niceness start to bleed together because what we're saying is we would rather be nice to each other and avoid calling out what's really happening because it's divisive. So I I think niceness and divisiveness get rolled in all together. And that's what I'm scared. Like I'm actually scared of niceness and I'm not saying go out and be rude to people or be unkind to folks. But what I'm saying is that we're prioritizing niceness to the detriment of truth telling. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's not okay. And, and it, and it's, what does niceness really do? What does it get us? It actually gets us to a worse case of uh, covert racism, sexism, et cetera, because it's still happening. It's just harder to detect. Yeah. And so niceness really doesn't get us anywhere. I don't know. I, I think mm-hmm. maybe we should keep the niceness levels where they are, but I think the truth telling piece needs to raise because right. truth telling is uncomfortable, but not with the intention of being divisive. It's actually intended to be collective because we're mm-hmm. telling a fuller story. Yeah. It's not inherently divisive to talk about pain and suffering and problems, right? But I think peep the groups that are in power instinctively feel mm-hmm. as divisive because it's uncomfortable, like you had said earlier in the pod. And then um, it also challenges their power, right? The power that you have was not mm-hmm. natural. You didn't earn it, right? You mm-hmm. got it off of the backs of someone else and they're right. trying to have that conversation with you and you're just going to brush it aside because you think it's divisive. And I wonder now we're coming up on one year anniversary of George Floyd's murder, right? And with Derek Chauvin's mm-hmm. conviction, um, you know, whether there's going to be a whole bunch of white people who were kind of waking up last summer, but are now like, you know, it's done. Let's not talk about it anymore because there was a bad thing that happened. And then that person got held accountable for the bad thing that happened so we can move on. Um, And Mm. to kind of regurgitate, so to speak, the messages and the um, narratives and positions of last summer of 2020 is to be divisive, right? Right, right. I I wonder how, how soon it will be that we start hearing that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and that's where, I try to hold things in my brain, but usually it doesn't work. So I kind of screenshot things that I want to remember to bring up with you, Lisa. And one of the things that really reminds me of this is Austin Channing Brown talking about I'm still here. Like, as you said that, it just reminded me that, you know, hopefully the momentum of change and Mm anti-racism and anti-all the isms will continue to push forward in this wave that we've seen. But I still think the people that are the targets of all the isms will still go back to that. I'm still here, even and in despite of and in the face of all of the isms, because what do you do when you're still here and people so soon forget the name George Floyd and they so soon forget the name Breonna Taylor? That's the problem is the people who were hurt are still hurt. And there hasn't been healing because divisiveness has been the scapegoat. And yeah. so, um, Lisa, I, I found this uh, kind of piece of a chapter in Austin Channing Brown's book. It says, when you believe niceness disproves the presence of racism, it's easy to start believing bigotry is rare and that the label racist should only be applied to mean-spirited, intentional acts of discrimination. The problem with this framework, besides being a grossly under- misunderstanding of how racism operates in systems structures enabled by nice people is that it obligates me, an oppressed person, me to be nice in return rather than truthful. I'm expected to come closer to racists, be nicer to them, coddle them. And, you know, that quote by Austin Channing Brown really stood out to me because it loops us all the way back to our very first pod where we talked about nice white triathletes. But I do think the, that uh, niceness and coded language like divisive is the enemy Mm -hmm. of the true work because we're still going to be here. And if we don't handle this divisiveness, we're going to be right in the same spot once again, wondering why we have another hashtag. I don't want another hashtag. I don't, I don't want another 
hashtag with George Floyd. I don't want another hashtag. And so, you know, I think um, kindness, we're not saying don't be kind, folks. Please don't run out and say, Shauna and Lisa said, don't be kind. But what we are saying, I think, Lisa, and you correct me if I'm off, is that we do want fuller truth telling, fuller truth telling when it comes to this work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if someone uses the D word, you have to catch it and say, I'm going to (laughs) stop you. I'm going to stop you right there. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Exactly. And try and engage um, in a conversation that discomfort Mm -hmm. isn't division. Mm, Absolutely. And I think Lisa, for their homework, since we're both educators, I would love to hear from people who start to interrupt that coded language of divisiveness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When might you interrupt it as you hear it? Hopefully now you will hear it more often and then you can target it to interrupt it. But Mm -hmm. let us know when you hear that word divisive or anything that's coded language around divisive, how do you stop that? How do you interrupt it? How do you handle it? Even if you fumble it, we want to know so that we can all learn from the experience and we can either hear from you via email or you can drop it in our Facebook page Unfazed podcast and we can learn more. I need to practice this as well. I hear divisive and I just want to go off. Um, but instead I want more tools and uh, mm-hmm. scripts to respond when we hear it because we know we're going to hear it again. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Hey folks, Sarah and Sarah here from feisty medias. If we were writing podcast. So Sarah, Do you remember last year when we created the feistiest team in endurance sports? Oh, I remember. (laughs) It's a, okay, it's a team that faces challenges head on, understands the connection between mental and physical health, understands the value of a good laugh. We definitely understand that. Um, And aims to get the best out of ourselves and each other in sport and life. Yeah, so we've had a full year of virtual happy hours and expert talks, team challenges, awesome prizes, and swag. And we are ready to open the door for year two of the Feisty Team. We are relaunching officially, but that's not all. They wouldn't call us feisty if we didn't have something extra up our sleeves. (laughs) So this year, since racing is kicking off again, we decided to kick off even harder. On May 18th to 20th, we'll be hosting the Level Up Summit, which is three evenings of learning and fun to set the tone for 2021. At Level Up, we'll discuss everything you'll need to start your race season off with a bang. Work with your female physiology to get the best out of yourself and stay true to our community goal of creating a more inclusive sport. So when you sign up for the Feisty Team, you get access to the Level Up Summit for free. You can also sign up for the Summit separately if you wish, if you just want to get like a taste of what the Feisty Team is about. Head on over to FeistyTriathlon.com for all the deets. Yep, that's feistytriathlon.com, which is also a brand new website. Racing is back, and together we will level up. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks, or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time.